Okay, so normally we start chatting about like fun, cute, happy things, but I'm filled with rage, and so I want to start with rage today. Good. I I also am filled with rage just because. Listen, when when your allergies are attacking you because the beautiful trees in your front yard <laughs> want you dead, it makes you angry. Watch out, world! She's a little stuffy. It's over for all of you. <laughs> It's the beginning of the end, everyone. Girl's gonna sneeze. (laughs) This is not good. You can't make me laugh this much. I'm supposed to be angry. Grr. Grr. (laughs) Okay, so I'm gonna tell you about this little fiction that's going on in my head. And it starts with the fact that a couple men lately, but especially one man are trying to manic pixie dream girl me. Oh, no. Real quick, for, for those who don't oh, yeah, know what yeah. that is, <laughs> can you explain what a manic pixie dream girl is? So the manic pixie dream girl, I think we talked about this in maybe the Medusa episode, but mm-hmm. she's the, like, fun, quirky, artsy girl who's definitely mentally unwell and is there to just give the main lead guy who has no personality uh, character development. Mm-hmm. She's just there to bring him out of his shell and... She's super fun and quirky and confident and unique. And it's like yeah. a very toxic. It's very much like, oh, you will fix me with your quirky uniqueness. Like that's the attitude that men have towards like a manic pixie dream girl. She's supposed to be like, do you want to skip class and go to the art museum? And like, listen, I do want to skip class and go to the art museum. But it's 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 even more than that where it's like, do you want to skip class go to Party City, get crazy wigs, and then go to the art museum pretending we're, like, art spy thieves. Tracy, do not describe a thing that we have done. In our defense, we went to a grocery (laughs) store. It was sadder. Oh, And we were. We were, like, 17-year-old manic pixie teens. Like, you're allowed to be... When you're when you're seventeen and spend your entire life on Tumblr, you're allowed to go put on a wig and be weird and walk up to people in grocery stores and pretend you're doing a scavenger hunt just to get weird pictures. <sighs> okay, yeah. Here's the thing. I can't be upset too much. I could. I'm not. When people want to manic pixie dream girl me, because listen. I was born and bred to be a Manic Pixie Dream Girl. I have meticulously refined this personality through years. Yeah. So the way I imagine it is this. The Manic Pixie Dream Girl is like, yes, hello, look at this web that I have spun. It is shiny and sticky. And don't mind the other men I've exsanguinated that are hanging out stuck here. It's it's for the vibe. And then on the other side of the Thunderdome Mm -hmm. is... The, like, gingerbread boy. He looks like all the other gingerbread boys, and he'll crumble like a cookie if you mention his mom. But look, this one has gumdrop buttons. And he's over here, like, I'm going to reverse flatland you and slice up your personality and make myself three-dimensional. And when you're like, wait, weren't there spheres? He's going to be like, no, 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 everything's always been a circle. And it's just a battle of... Who can mess up who mm. first for power? Like, Gingerbread Boy's like, I want your Manic Pixie wings. Yeah. And Manic Pixie Dream Girl is like, mm, I want your soft ginger cookie center. 
and you're just gonna see who gets there first and i have this like it's interesting i have this kind of attitude of like i don't think there really exists a manic pixie dream girl okay there i guess there are some who like watched 500 days of summer and kind of got the wrong impression from it (laughs) but i i'm on the side of like people who are seen as manic pixie dream girls are so much more dimensional right then the idea of a manic pixie dream girl really is so like i i see summer in that movie as a fully fleshed out character not an idea yeah that's because you're looking at it from the woman's perspective and i think very often like I did with looking for Alaska, I was like, no, she's a full character. And then when I look back, I'm like, oh, no, I made her mm. a full character. Like, oh, you yeah. gave her all the things that she needed because she was the character that appealed to you. It's not there well, in the source I, I material. It, and I haven't read that book in so long, but I would argue that it is there. Again, it's the same thing as 500 Days of Summer, where it's different, where it's it's her, the whole story, being like, I am not this thing for you to chase. I am not this thing for you to put on a pedestal. I am not this thing for you to fix you. I am a broken person. Stop seeing me that way. Mm-hmm. Like, excuse me, sir. I cannot paper mache your personality together. I am manic pixie dream girling for myself. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I yeah. am trying to quirkily acquire <laughs> character development on my own behalf. And it's so interesting that you say that many people have Manic Pixie Dream Girl you because I can confidently say I have never once in my life been seen as a Manic Pixie Dream Girl. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't know what to say. I, uh, I, the Manic Pixie Dream Girl is such an appealing character if you are me, I guess. I don't no, know. If, it's, I, see, the difference is like, uh, Yes, like you, like you said, you've sculpted your personality. You're fun loving. You can be spontaneous. You have all these, you know, you can put on this kind of show when you want to, which I would argue isn't super who you are at your core. But it can be fun to to pull different parts of your personality out at different events. You know, all that kind of thing. I'm just such an old lady, (laughs) like through and through. I am 75 years old. I have never once been manic pixie dream girl. But do you know how many? gosh darn people in my life have called me grandma, associated me with grandma, have nicknamed me grandma, have like been like, you remind me of just like a really comforting grandma or grandpa. But here's the thing, Trace, and I say this as someone whose character has been very much developed by knowing you, <laughs> <laughs> that you're the friend who's really going to cut to the quick, like, yeah. hey, other person this is the thing you need to work on that's true i'm I'm not fun enough to be the manic pixie dream girl i'm way too i'm too practical i'm too over it i'm like the sad annoyed whiskey grandpa that's my vibe i think you're fun thank you we were talking before we started recording about how i have a sweatshirt that just says no fun and i wear it very unironically (laughs) no fun allowed around me my favorite sweatshirt says leave me the f**keth alone i love that one. Oh well if we're choosing favorite sweatshirts that's really tough because i did just get one that says don't tell me to smile on the sleeve with just two dots and a straight line on the front for like a neutral face oh i will be buying that as well 
softest sweatshirt. Oh, wait. No, Tracy, we can't be doing this. Come on. Our favorite hoodies are willing, are willing and fable, and fable hoodies. hoodies. <laughs> okay. We are like 10 wait, minutes wait. in. Wait, we're starting the podcast. We're starting. We're starting. <laughs> hey, hi. I'm Rowan Hall. The podcast has started. <laughs> hey, I'm Tracy Harrison. The podcast has started. And this is Willing and Fable, the podcast that has started. <laughs> hey, guess what? It brings you original retellings and in-depth research on the history, mystery, and mythology that makes the world so fascinating. You all know that we research a topic from history or mythology every week, and then we write a whole original story to go along with that topic. So if you want to support us, you can join us on Patreon at patreon.com slash willingandfable or check out our recommendations page at willingandfable.com. You'll find sweatshirts, movies, TV shows. The, the books, everything you could ever want that we talk about on this pod. You can also support the podcast by picking up one of our snuggly hoodies that's also found on our website. We humbly recommend you buy it a bunch of sizes too big so that you can just like disappear into an abyss of warm fleece. Or you can wander out to the edge of the dark wood and whisper your secrets to the monsters that live there. In exchange for snackies, the monster will make scary noises outside the windows of your enemies in the wee hours of the night. But no matter what you do, we're just happy to have you here. Y'all, I wrote that one, and hearing Tracy <laughs> read it was just mwah, chef's kiss. It was amazing. Mwah. Thank you for saying snackies. Snackies, absolutely. <laughs> Little monster snackies. Little monster snackies. We got professional so quick to start the podcast for like two seconds. <laughs> So, last thing, before we get into the history, mystery, and mythology, we want to talk about one last very cool, awesome thing, and that is our very cool, awesome sponsor, Greenleaf Geek. Rowan and I recently got distracted, as we do, while we were on a Zoom call, and we went shopping through Greenleaf Geek's curated dice, because she has the best curated dice. And we were supposed to be working, but instead we were just poking through and saying, if we could have our dream collection of dice, which ones would we pick? Okay, I am obsessed and Tracy Fenley's first, but I am obsessed with the Pride Love D6 set because they have little hearts for the pips instead of dots. It's so cute. And she has a bunch of little mini sets in, like little, little itty bitties. I love the little <laughs> itty bitty ones. You can get a little like old mint tin and roll them in there. I have a pocket watch case that my mom found to put dice in for me. That's because your mom is cooler than we will ever be. My mom... Manic Pixie Dream Girl'd me a pocket watch case. <laughs> Your mom Manic Pixie Dream Girl'd you into existence. <laughs> hey, also, if you enjoy our Wizard and the Rogue story, Leah does have some curated dice to mm -hmm. match, aptly named the Wizard and the Rogue, respectively. Check out at GreenleafGeek on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok to see examples of the dice we're shopping for. And don't forget to use the code FABLE, that's F-A-B-L-E, for 10% off your order. Some restrictions apply. Okay. So, this episode had a different topic, and I went a little rogue. And we've been covering a lot of ancient Greek and Roman myths lately, and I was really going to get away from that mm -hmm. and explore a different part of history. But then, Politico released that article on May 2nd titled, Supreme Court has voted to overturn abortion rights. Draft opinion shows. And it was written by Josh Gerstein and Alexander Ward. 
And the piece begins, quote, The Supreme Court has voted to strike down the landmark Roe v. Wade decision, according to an initial draft majority opinion written by Justice Samuel Alito circulated inside the court and obtained by Politico. The draft opinion is a full-throated, unflinching repudiation of the 1973 decision which guaranteed federal constitutional protections of abortion rights and a subsequent 1992 decision, Planned Parenthood versus Casey, that largely maintained the right, quote, Roe was egregiously wrong from the start, Justice Alito writes. We hold that Roe and Casey must be overruled. He writes in the document, labeled as the, quote, opinion of the court, he says, it is time to heed the Constitution and return the issue of abortion to the people's elected representatives, end quote. So for anyone who has no earthly clue what I'm talking about, um, you'll often hear Roe v. Wade simply referred to as Roe. And it is the landmark case that established a constitutional right to abortion. Planned Parenthood v. Casey is the 1992 case which upheld it. Mm -hmm. And this draft opinion that we're talking about is discussing overturning Roe, meaning women and people with uteruses would no longer have bodily autonomy granted to them by the federal government of these United States. And if it wasn't so abundantly clear by this point, this podcast is extremely pro-choice, and we understand that to mean pro-choice over what to do with your own body, not dictated by the Ten white men in power. (laughs) And the Constitution, which does not mention women at all. Not at all. All right. There has been plenty more news since that first article came out, including, but not limited to, it looking like Congress and the Senate will absolutely fail to protect human rights. A few governors and senators are getting all excited about taking away contraception next. There will be plenty more news by the time you're listening. And for your sake, person in the car, person doing your dishes, I hope that it is all good news. (laughs) Tracy and I have often said that we are not a news podcast. We urge you to please stay informed about this issue and choose your sources wisely. We love NPR mm-hmm. over here. Mm-hmm. Um, but we are a history podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we are. And you do know that we like tying history into current events. So since so many folks have been tweeting about and referencing Lysistrata, I thought that we ought to cover it today. And don't worry, we're actually going to explore a ton of other history, too. Uh, that is not from the ancient Greek and Roman times. (laughs) I can tell you already, this may be a bit of a spicy episode. We're going to get angry, we're going to have opinions, and um, there may be a few things that we should warn you of ahead of time. You know what, though? Like, is it spicy for people to have opinions about wanting to make choices with their own human No, that's not the spicy part. The spicy part is how, like... I can already tell, like, how vicious I'm going to get to certain people and things. Probably, yeah. I'm not going to be nice about it this episode. Let's put it that way. (laughs) Good. 
<laughs> Good. I was texting Tracy while I was working on this um, just a little bit. But I think I have some surprises in store for you. Ooh. And they're not going to be good. Okay, Great. I can't so, wait to yell about them. Two quick notes. This episode is going to involve medical discussions, some of them pretty scary, as well as infant mortality. And additionally, there will be a few points in this episode where I discuss historical information and data that only refers to, quote, women's reproductive rights in regards to abortion, contraception, existing. Uh, And even though we have no way of knowing how many non-women were excluded or misgendered in these histories, it is important for us to remember that what falls under the category of, quote, women's health includes all people with uteruses as well as many folks who can and cannot bear children. Very well said. So, Lysistrata, or Lysistrata, you can say it any way you want. Lysistrata is an ancient Greek play that was written by Aristophanes and first performed in classical Athens in 411 BC. It's important to remember that as we discuss this play moving forward— It was a comedy. Uh, In fact, this play famously represents a shift in Aristophanes' writing. He used a dramatic structure that differed from the style that is now called old comedy, and that made him famous. Mm -hmm. Aristophanes was like the old comedy guy. Okay. And this play was his shift into middle comedy. And the big shift was that he took the dramatic structure but wrote a comedy. Mm-hmm. Okay. So at the same time that he was writing Lysistrata, he was also writing another play that focused on gender issues. And that play presented the women as rational and dignified and the men as irrational and ridiculous. Ooh, shocking. <laughs> if you're sitting there thinking, ooh, look at that, so progressive. No, the comedy of the play was that women might be rational. Oh, right? that was the comedy? Mm, okay, buckle up, buttercup. Our play that we're discussing right now is named for its lead gal, Lysistrata. She convenes a meeting of women from various Greek city-states that were at war with one another. And we don't know how that could have possibly ever happened. It wouldn't have. But this play is satire, so who cares? Mm -hmm. Our Athenian woman, with the support of a Spartan woman, these are two sworn enemies, convinces the women at large to withhold sexual privileges from the men until they agree to end the Peloponnesian War. And this was a real historical war that Aristophanes was commenting on. Uh, From 431 to 404 BC, the Delian League, led by Athens, fought the Peloponnesian League, led by Sparta. At the beginning of the war, Athens was the strongest city-state in Greece, but by the end, Sparta became the leading power. Aristophanes was Athenian. Like all wars, the lower-class citizens in the warring areas experienced lasting economic devastation. This absolutely changed Mm -hmm. ancient Greece. So the women in Aristophanes' comedy are tired of sending their husbands and sons off to die, and they're tired of wasting their most beautiful and fertile years waiting for their husbands to come home, as the play describes. Mm Mm-hmm. In the play, Lysistrata says, quote, If we sat around at home all made up and walked past the men wearing only our diaphanous underwear with our pubes plucked in a neat triangle and our husbands got hard and hankered to ball us, but we didn't go near them and kept away, they'd sue for peace and pretty quick you can count on that. That's 
translated by Jay Henderson. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Of course, the nature of this play allows us to ignore the reality of extramarital sex that these soldiers would have had access to and absolutely enjoyed. True, but <laughs> it. I've just. I'm so excited to talk about this whole topic because I have seen everywhere on the internet again people quoting this story and saying we need as a society to bring this yeah. back. It's me. I'm people. Yeah, I, yeah. yeah as well. <laughs> yeah, but we're, 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 we are both people. When I when I say this, <laughs> bring it back, and we'll get a we'll get real change real quick. Oh, this Tracy, I'm so excited. Okay. So, the play Lysistrata is more complicated than that. The old women, quote, in this play, seize control of the nearby Acropolis, which holds the treasury. So if they have no funding, they can have no war. And in fact, one of the stylistic choices that marked Aristophanes' move into middle comedy was his use of a divided chorus. And that chorus was the old men and the old women. And they didn't unify until the end. Oh. And these are some of my favorite characters, because at one point, the old men come to burn down the gate to the Acropolis, and they're going to, you know, get their money back, and they're big, strong men. And the old women just toss pitchers of water on them. (laughs) (laughs) Just picturing a bunch of really sad, wet old men with, like, dry sticks that were once on fire. There's also a sexist magistrate who reflects on what ancient literature calls, quote, the hysterical nature of women and their devotion to wine, promiscuous sex, and erotic cults. But above all, he blames the men for the poor supervision of their women folk, end quote. So there's a lot of back and forth uh-huh, about uh-huh, uh-huh. the men wanting sex, the women wanting sex. There are some women who are like, this sucks. I'm, I want to get laid, too. But they, they, they work through it. And by the end, Lysistrata's plan ends the Peloponnesian War. Though Lysistrata, the play, mm-hmm. is clearly anti-Peloponnesian War, or at least how it was progressing at the time of Aristophanes' release of the play— It wasn't specifically a pacifist play, as modern interpretations make it out to be. Aristophanes wasn't anti-war as a general rule. Mm -hmm. He was an Athenian. They were super powerful until the Peloponnesian War. Like, it was not in his best interest to be anti-war. It's also not the hot feminist take that people typically read it as today. Aristophanes still reinforce the ancient Greek view of women as beings that needed protection from others as well as themselves. And the idea that women should be in charge of political decisions is a large part of what made this play funny to ancient Greek audiences. I want to make like a really funny joke of like, oh, ha ha ha. Can you imagine women in politics? I can't reach that. I can't reach for that joke at this point. I don't have a problem with modern audiences performing this show as a hot feminist take. That's awesome. Yeah. But I really do enjoy knowing that Aristophanes was still being pretty sexist. It it gives us such a more accurate picture of the history. It reminds me of what you and Spencer talked about with Hadestown in reference to Orpheus and Eurydice, how 
Hadestown really fleshes out those characters a bit more. It adds more nuance to the original story. But that doesn't mean that the original story doesn't hold its own value in other ways from a historical perspective. I will never stop standing on the hill and shouting that nymphs are just blow-up dolls in Greek mythology. That is (laughs) the hill I will die on because it is so much more interesting to know that and then read these stories. Mm -hmm. And I feel that way about this. So, okay, picture this. You have a stage. Okay. Lysistrata is the show that is playing. There are no women on stage We're in because you right now. ancient Greece. Okay. Yes. And it's all performed by men. And since this is an Aristophanes play that is packed with sexual humor, the actors playing the desperate men were wearing, quote, phallic costumes or huge artificial penises made of red leather. <laughs> and there was padding for stomachs and bottoms and numerous exaggerated designs to make the characters obvious from hundreds of feet away. So you can imagine exactly how exaggerated the women looked and how the men looked. And it's all men up there. Okay, that I would want to see that. I'm not going to lie. I want to see that, too. I want to see that, though, with women acting as men and men acting as women. <gasps> Ooh, that would be good. It'd be cool, right? I want to see a modern interpretation of this story. Are there? Do you know if there are, like, modern reinterpretations of this play? There are so many translations of this play, and they range from what I would, like, say are more stuffy quote-unquote scholarly translations and then more body there's a translation where i think the spartans are translated specifically to have scottish accents and i don't actually like that translation but that is an example of some of the like uh, more creative Mm -hmm. choices people are making uh the cool thing about ancient greek plays is people can just really get yeah you can go buck wild with spicy yeah Mm -hmm. exactly So the name Lysistrata means dissolver of armies, and her character may have been modeled after a real woman. Oh. She was an Athenian woman named Lysimache, and that means the dissolver of battle. She was a priestess of Athena at the time of the play's production, and she was an open opponent of the Peloponnesian War. That's amazing. It's really cool. Do you think that is... I guess, and you wouldn't have an answer for this, but I wonder how much of that is is actually the case of how much we know she was a real woman or if she kind of became a figure after the play became really popular. Because that's a pretty big coincidence. I have no clue. I saw this fact in a couple of locations, Mm -hmm. which is why I felt comfortable enough to include it as an anecdote. She may have existed. The play may have been based on her. But we don't really know much more than that if there even is anything to know right so let's talk about the history of sex strikes let's do it okay now on march 3rd in 2003 there were more than a thousand readings of lysistrata held in all 50 states in the united states and in 59 other countries it was called the lysistrata project and it was designed to express disapproval for the war in Iraq. Mm-hmm. It raised money for, quote, peacekeeping and humanitarian charities working in the Middle East. And that's kind of the thing that comes up when you look up Lysistrata and, and political activation. But there are numerous actual sex strikes that have taken place in the real world where women say, 
no more for you Mm -hmm. until you fix what's going on. And the media loves to link them to Lysistrata for better or worse, accurately or inaccurately. So we're just going to chat about a few examples. Let's do it. I only found this in one place, and there's not a ton of information, but I wanted to include it because uh, it's far enough back in history, and it's not communities that are traditionally like linked into the Lysistrata kind of uh, larger mythos. So I did find in one location, in 1600, Iroquois women refused sex to stop warfare, and then they gained veto power for all future wars. Interesting. Okay. I hope that's true. Me too. Now the rest of them, we these are modern enough that we, we know what's going on. Mm-hmm. In 2006, in Pereira, Colombia, the partners... The significant others of gang members withheld sex to demand a reduction of violence. And this city was at the time very much plagued by violent acts of all kinds. Mm-hmm. And the Global Nonviolent Action Database reported that the city's murder rate fell by 26.5% by 2010. Oh my God, that is an insane drop. So we have no exact way of knowing correlation. You know, how much did this really influence it? But was it was notoriously effective. Mm-hmm. In Kenya in 2009, there was a week-long sex strike aimed at politicians, and it was supported by both the wife of the president and the prime minister. Good. The strike of the crossed legs occurred in the small town of Barbacoas in Colombia in 2011, The town was virtually unreachable by car, and many people had died trying to access it, and the government kept failing to build a paved road. Mm. People were getting very upset because, among other things, if they needed emergency services, you could not get people out of town to hospitals. Right. One of the protesters said, quote, We are being deprived of our most basic human rights, and we cannot allow that to happen. Why bring children into this world when they can just die without medical attention and we can't even offer them the most basic rights? We just decided to stop having sex and stop having children until the state fulfills its previous promises. So that's the second one in Colombia. Yes. Interesting. Good for you, Colombia. Yeah. And one of the things that you hear a lot about these sex strikes, and sometimes they're linked specifically to reproduction, and sometimes they're linked specifically to sex as the idea of pleasure. Mm -hmm. The Guardian wrote of this strike, quote, In this instance, the so-called sex strike has been successful largely because it drew publicity to the problem, not because withholding sex prompted men into changing their behavior. And that is the common criticism. Is it a criticism? I mean, I, I think if it's effective, maybe it's a, you know, a drastic way to be effective. But if it brings attention to it in a way that really brings attention to it, you know, people always say sex sells, like sex will bring attention. So maybe it's not pushing men to change their behavior, but it is putting a very big eye on the problem. Right. And I think this is talking about something in 2011 and even between 2011 and 2022, we have a much 
sharper understanding of how publicity can influence things mm-hmm. thanks to social media and increased communication. And I think that naturally allows us to think of publicity sometimes first. Yeah. But the farther back you go in the 2000s linking to these sex strikes, to my mind, it felt more like the criticism was like, people didn't actually change. It just got news coverage. And I, in (laughs) 2022, I'm like, look, the newsmen, they came. (laughs) Right. (laughs) During 2011, there was a sex strike in Belgium where socialist senator Marlene Temmerman famously wrote, quote, I call on the spouses of all negotiators to withhold sex until a deal is reached. Have no more sex until the new administration is posing on the steps of the palace. She said she was inspired by the 2009 sex strike in Kenya. Temmerman later distanced herself from this protest, likening it to a joke because she got a lot of pushback. I mean... Okay. Yeah, I get, I don't know. I don't know enough of the context to have an opinion on that. But of course, you're going to get pushed back. But I guess it depends on what you're fighting for. Like, if I made this stance today of, we should have a sex strike for women's rights, and I got a lot of pushback, I'd be like, well, our rights were being taken away. So I'm not going to pretend it was a joke. But it was a different time. And I don't know the context. But it is disappointing to hear that she distanced herself from it. I also don't experience a level of conservatism that makes me want to keep sex out of discussions. Right. Well, clearly with our podcast, hello. Hello, hi. (laughs) We're not shy about it. A minute ago, I did read a quote from ancient Greece about plucking your pubes into a triangle. So clearly, we are not experiencing that. (laughs) But again, this is another thing. I don't know the full context of that. I haven't read into every bit of political information. But nevertheless, here they are. Here's here's the one, though. This is the one that I really dove into that I thought was so fascinating. Lima Bowie was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in October 2011 for her campaign to end violence in Liberia. She's famous for having organized the women protesters in 2002 to get their husbands on board by withdrawing sex until they, quote, made peace a priority. Notably, both Christian and Muslim women came together with a common goal in this protest, and while American and European media compared the strike to Lysistrata, Liberian publications did not. Mm. Famously, she had not read the play, any version of it, until long after this had passed. Oh, interesting. So the briefest of backgrounds on why they were protesting— This was the second civil war in the Republic of Liberia, which ended in 2003. Liberia was founded in 1821 by former enslaved Americans who based their society on American norms and created a constitution inspired by the U.S. The settlers and the indigenous population had tension over numerous issues, including who controlled the natural resources. Though there is much more to it than that. This resulted in two civil wars that lasted for 14 years and took more than 200,000 lives. Lima Bowie gives a very insightful look into the actual practicality of doing this sex strike. Mm -hmm. She said when the strike was first suggested, quote, we all thought she was mad. We wondered whether she could truly be a Muslim because someone else suggested this during a meeting. Okay. 
It didn't win favor in this group of women until the idea of a sex strike was linked with the idea that no one was innocent while fighting continued. So by doing nothing, you were guilty. Okay. Makes sense. Lima Bowie pointed out that in rural communities where women were able to link this idea closely with their religious practice when they were striking, it went much better than women who lived in in urban areas. Mm-hmm. So once the strike began, women who lived in urban areas began coming to meetings with bruises on their faces, and they had been beaten or raped until they agreed to leave the strike. Lima Bowie devotes less than one page in her memoir to the sex strike and says, quote, it had little or no practical effect, but it was extremely valuable in getting us media attention. I, and I'm sure we'll talk about this more and later in the podcast, but that was a, a question that I had of <sighs> the dangerous realities of, of a sex strike. If you are in a heterosexual relationship and you go on a sex strike, you're, you know, you're smaller than the man. There can be force involved. Right. There can be aggression involved. Things can be taken from you that you're not offering. And that can be a really dangerous situation. And again, I'm sure it's something we'll talk about more but it's it's still hard to see the evidence of it yeah so well first of all i would urge people to read this article that i read it's aristophanes lysistrata the liberian sex strike and the politics of reception it was Mm -hmm. written by helen morales and i learned so much about sex strikes from that i didn't dive in too much to the negative repercussions of a sex strike because to my research there wasn't like a x number of women who went on a sex strike right were sexually assaulted but i think it's something that you bring up and and i purposefully research because we take it for granted as a part of the equation like, of, of course, course you of course. have to consider that yes a- and it's important to remember that a sex strike while presented in Lysistrata as this cute thing where you dress up and you put on lipstick and you make the men want you and then you say, ha, 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 no. That's not actually what it's like in practical application. Mm -hmm. And depending on whether the sex strike was linked specifically to reproduction, women saying, I'm not going to bring children into this world until you fix the world that they will be living in. For example, Mm -hmm. I am not going to bring children into this world until you give other women the rights to abortions, you could say, in our scenario Mm -hmm. in 2022. There's also saying sex as pleasure. So if you are not going to consider my bodily autonomy, you do not get to have sex with me. So there there are a couple different ways to look at this, and none of them are good if the, the men respond poorly. (laughs) <laughs> well, yeah, because the the underlying assumption of the, the the sex strike as kind of like a fun, it's a funny thing, assumes the respect of the mm-hmm. body. It assumes that by saying, no, you can't have me, that the men will just be frustrated and be like, well, I don't fix this so then I can go home and have sex with this person. Which, on the best day, no sex strike involved isn't even a guarantee. Mm-hmm. And it's such a problem in our society. So 
<laughs> to, to to see it as a joke is, is fun and, you know, what it is to say this is how we're going to solve problems can be like a, a conversation you have. But we are already not safe. And this does make it doing a sex strike, putting on a sex strike makes you less safe. Right. And if you get a lot of media attention and, and it can force change, great. Otherwise, it is a lot like it's it's like it it said in her memoir little or no practical effect, but it can it can be valuable for media attention. The thing that interests me about people talking about Liz Estrada-ing the men right now in this mm-hmm. time when Roe v. Wade is up for debate. I'm going to say that sentence. Um, I yeah. am interested in it as a tool, and this was proposed by, by many people, that, you know, you're not just sex striking to get the men who don't believe in women's bodily autonomy to do something, you're sex striking all the men so that these quote-unquote good men, these men that are like, oh, no, Mm -hmm. oh, no, I believe in your right to an abortion. I believe in bodily autonomy for people with uteruses. Okay, what are you doing about it? Mm -hmm. Where's your money? Where's your mouth? What are you up to? Yeah, where's your money going? Have you voted? Have you reached out to your representative? Have you sent emails? Have you called? Have you joined any volunteer organizations have you done any of that and i think that if a sex strike were to be effective in 2022 it would be most effective in getting the quote-unquote good men to participate yes especially because this is talked a lot about in politics but like people say quote democrats have no teeth you know they don't they don't take the action the good people often don't step up and do the thing. That's the big struggle, right? Like, vote. Right. You won't cross the lines that the other people will cross. Exactly. And since this political article has come out, I am in conversations with women I know where people are stocking up on Plan B and saying, I have it for any human who wants it, needs it, free of charge. Mm -hmm. I will get it to you. People are figuring out how to order abortion pills from Europe in advance so that if if Mm -hmm. someone happened to need it, that they knew, they could get it to them. Yes. I know. People are creating maps of where you can go and how far it is. People are offering up their homes for people coming out of state coming into their state to get abortion so that they don't have to do a whole one-day travel. They can be safe and have a safe place to stay and recover and all of that. There are pilots who are organizing to fly people into states where they can get an abortion Mm -hmm. for free. There are people taking action, and obviously there are men involved in this. But so often in my personal life, it's the non-men. So Mm – if people were going to Lysistrata, that would be the way that I would see it being effective past a cute little tweet. And I posted that cute little tweet. Like, I did that thing. I would love to see mm-hmm. it. <laughs> yes. So I'm going to take a brief break in real world and tell my story before we dive into more spice. <laughs> Let's do it. I remember my mother in the house, ruler of the children and subject of my father. She was at all times both within and without herself. Kissing his cheek and at the same time like a spirit in the room, observing how she kissed his cheek. Her grace, her form, in all things trying to be the craft and the craftsman. 
She was quiet. Even when speaking, she had a soft tone that forced me always to lean in. She seemed happiest to listen, waiting for the right times to mm-hmm and yes, dear. She would shepherd myself and my brother around the house, this way and that, sit like a sculpture at the loom, laugh with passing wives like the shimmering of bells. This is what my mother taught me. That was the time before the war. My father and my brother, just grown, marched away, sailed away on ships to defend us or kill innocents. The story was always different depending on who was doing the talking, and I was young enough that no one was talking to me. There was a change in the city, almost imperceptible and difficult to describe, but I almost imagined the laughter of the women left alone only with the old, young, and infirm, was louder than it had ever been. Their silences were lighter. Soon the crying of young babies disappeared and the youngest children began to grow with no new siblings to take their place. Athens had an order to it that I was too young to understand, but looking back, I see in their hardship and poverty a cleverness and enthusiasm that did not exist before. The young women around me, raised without the fear of prowling men in the streets and a heavy hand at home, were louder than their mothers had been. The only enemies were distant and other and killing our brothers, but there was no one here to teach us domesticated terror. My mother was an amphora of finely pressed oil, and I was that oil simmering over the fire. Over the decades, we forgot the hush of men's Athens and found babbling, laughing, a day-to-day -day of our own. It was exceptional how one can find normal, daily joys, even through destruction. It was not only happiness then, the city was turned to ruin. Women were taken, harmed, snatched away, husbands did not return, young sons were slain. Women would gather and grieve together, preparing the bodies of those they could and marking empty graves for those they could not. Raised on the wrapping of the dead, the young women who grew up around me were unflinching in their pragmatism when the time demanded. That was how the gathering came to be, I think. The young women did not know to reach for silent grief and instead demanded an effective rage. You bring back our men, or when you come, you will not. It was like catching fire. Gathered at the temple of Athena, the women of Athens had a plan. Simple, too simple. Deadly for some, I feared. A risk, but so, so powerful. We were to withhold sexual favors from the men until they ended this ravaging war. Those who were complicit would have no gratification by our hands, our mouths, our bodies. We, young, angry, and full of our power, took to the idea quickly. We swore an oath, danced, and sang. You would think, perhaps, we might be the only ones. But, oh no... The mothers, 
the mothers' mothers, the silent women watching themselves watch the men they loved die. They were the ones who screamed the loudest for justice. Eyes wide and teeth gnashing, they danced and stamped and cried with emotions I could not name. I was shocked. Their insights most profound, their tactics most clever. They knew the running of a house and thus had their plan to run the city. Our riot was but a game until these experienced women created a true plan. I have never so loved my mother as I did when she, glowing with this new control, placed the bowl in my hands and stared me down as I swore my oath to this covenant. The wine was rich. The fire that cast its light across her face was like darkness compared to the brightness of her eyes. I saw, through cracks I'd never seen before, my mother, ruler of all things, in silence or in shouting. I hoped... In her cleverness, with her witnessing spirit, she saw herself seeing me, and in me saw herself again. This is what my mother taught me. I really love that story. I loved the way you described watching people watch themselves from the outside. Yeah, I... I wish I could find the video again. There was someone talking about it on TikTok as part of their personal experience as a woman, and it's something that I so experience. I, I mm-hmm. find myself both participating and thinking about what it, it is like in third person. Yes, absolutely. I've asked a couple guys that I know about that since I've watched the video, mm-hmm. and no one particularly identified it as their own experience as well, um, which I wouldn't necessarily, like, hang my hat on that being a truism, but... Right. But it's the first thing I picked up on. I immediately connected with that. The idea of doing something and at the same time already thinking about what you're doing from the outside simultaneously, like, just living in both spaces. Absolutely. And I... If I imagine the world of Lysistrata, this Athens where they are having a sex strike... I imagine the young women being empowered by the lack of mm, abuse that their mothers had to live through, the way that society the was running. The other line that I actually, I marked here is the young women did not know to reach for silent grief and instead demanded an effective rage. Because I, it, it, I see that today. I see that. It made me think of, you know, Gen Z where it's, Millennials, you know, we did a lot of work in pushing for therapy. I know when I first started going to therapy, it was like a big thing in my family. And now it's like no one bats an eye. And and that was what this made me think of, of the younger generations don't have not been forced to be silent in their grief or their anger or their frustration and instead are loud and angry and demanding change. Yeah, I, I I think it's really easy to blame past generations for having not done better. And I certainly think that there's accountability there. But when I look at the women that I know that have more experience in me, I see in them the way that they were working to make things different for younger women. And mm-hmm. now I find myself also trying to figure out how I can do that. Yes, 
So mothers, and I don't even necessarily mean just mothers in the classic make baby, raise baby way. I mean mothers in that uh, mythological, like, creating way. Yes. In that, like, in the maiden mother in the yes. crone way. Yes. Yeah. 100%. Yeah, you, get you get me. You get me. All right. The story's over, friends. <laughs> The issue of abortion rights often gets wrapped up into theological debates. You know, when does life begin? But in theory, in theory, despite the fact (laughs) that American politicians love to prove that we are a nation that is very much controlled by Christian doctrine, these philosophical debates should have no place in lawmaking because there's supposed to be this separation of church and state. Right. So in the same way that you are not required to donate blood, despite the fact that it is always needed, and in the same way that a doctor cannot harvest the organs from a corpse without prior consent, we cannot force a woman to bear a child against her will, because if Mm -hmm. we did, we would be granting her less bodily autonomy than a corpse. Absolutely. It has been made abundantly clear in all these conversations that the rights and care of an unborn fetus is fundamentally more important to a certain part of the population than that of the body and, you know, human carrying that unborn fetus. I always think back to this political cartoon of a politician holding an umbrella over the baby bump of a woman and not over the woman herself. Oh, yeah. The next uh, image is uh, a mother holding a baby and they're standing in the rain and the politician is holding the umbrella over himself or something. Like, it's... Yes. (sighs) Okay, so there's this popular tweet that is being shared across tons of platforms, and there's a lot of different versions of this, but the one that I keep seeing is from Takara Elise. Mm -hmm. Quote, forced birth in a country with the highest maternal mortality rate, no paid maternity leave, no universal subsidized child care, and no continued birth parent care, and frequent inaccessible mental health care. So this tweet puts a pretty fine point on the fact that this debate, I really hate saying that, it's Mm -hmm. not really about child welfare or there would be more Republican lawmakers advocating for children's care after birth. And if it were about sacred motherhood, there would be more Republicans advocating for the health of people with uteruses while they are bearing children or after they have given birth. Right. Many of the points in this tweet are referencing the fact that the U.S. doesn't have requirements for parental care and leave. And much of that is left up to the individual's employer, which is pretty dark. But I wanted to check on that maternal mortality rate. Mm -hmm. Gianna Malilo, writing for AGMC, says, quote, 
Among 11 developed countries, the United States has the highest maternal mortality rate, a relative undersupply of maternity care providers, and is the only country not to guarantee access to provider home visits or paid parental leave in the postpartum period, a recent report from the Commonwealth Fund concluded. Yes, it is shocking and abysmal the treatment we give to people giving birth in this country. The article goes further to add, quote, in the United States, non-Hispanic black women are more than three times more likely to have a maternal death than white women. Non-Hispanic black women are also significantly more likely to have a severe maternal morbidity event at the time of delivery. When it comes to paid maternity leave, the Commonwealth Fund report found the United States was the only high-income country that does not guarantee paid leave to mothers after childbirth. All other 10 countries guarantee at least a 14-week paid leave time from work, while several provide more than a year of maternity leave. Yep, I, and my sister had to take unpaid leave. She had to save up her leave for years and then use it, and then take unpaid leave. My work likes to brag, and, and it unfortunately is a brag. It's a, it's a very good thing. They give the person giving birth 10 weeks of short-term disability while they're still carrying a child. And then both parents, if they work for the company, six weeks bonding time. So a human person at the company giving birth gets four months off, and that's like a big great thing given the standard of zero right and it's impossible to ignore the grave disparity between white and non-white absolutely people who are giving birth and their children and the horrible mortality rate and it is impossible to ignore the great disparity between high and low income care and treatment and a million other words that I feel and cannot articulate. <laughs> right. Right. Absolutely. I, I believe uh, Last Week Tonight with John Oliver has an entire mm-hmm. segment that goes into deep detail on this, if that's something you want to dive into and learn more about. I love John Oliver's statistics game. Their statistics game is so strong. It's very good. So I was chatting about this with a friend off podcast. And... You want to know what casual fact they just dropped on me? They said, oh, you know, the chainsaw was invented for childbirth. I am sorry, what now? What? I thought it was invented for, like, chopping down trees. Oh, girl. Okay, quick heads up. We're about to discuss a bit of real-world body horror. If you're squeamish, skip ahead a smidgen. If you're a person with a penis, you're not allowed to skip ahead. Buckle up. Okay. According to Pharmacy Times, in the late 18th century, two Scottish doctors, John Aiken and James Jeffrey, developed a prototype of the chainsaw, familiar today in the timber industry, for cephesiotomy and the oh excision God. of diseased bone. In light of this success, the chainsaw was eventually mechanized in the later 19th century to increase its ease of use by OBGYNs on expectant mothers. However, shortly after this, the chainsaw was superseded by the usually twisted wire saw, which was most commonly used to cut bone. 
This led to the mechanized chainsaw eventually getting adopted by the timber industry in 1905, allowing the instrument to be applied to trees rather than its original use on women, end quote. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. If your device is so effective that it ends up being used for trees instead of people, it was too brutish. So here's the thing. I and many of my family members have had orthopedic care. And in orthopedic care, sometimes you need a saw. There's a lot of big bones in there. The the reason that this is messed up is actually darker. So really quick, I just want to clear something up. If you are sitting there, dear listener, imagining like Saw 57 or whatever movie just came out, and you're hearing the like gas-powered chainsaw going, and yeah, 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 that is. Yeah, what they're I'm doing that thing where they touch you with it in a haunted hayride, but it doesn't have the chain kind oh, of yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's no chain. Okay, yeah. Don't worry. Don't worry. The original chainsaw was a long chain with serrated teeth and a handle on each end. More like a wire saw. And the symphysiotomy, the procedure that was mentioned before, is where a person's pubic symphysis is severed to widen the pelvis to aid in childbirth. That is, the joint above the vulva that is covered in cartilage, has ligaments, tendons, reinforcing it. That thing, yeah, that's cut. So Aiken and Jeffrey would wrap that toothy wire around the pelvic bone and alternate, pulling each handle until it was cut. And that was more precise than a knife. Okay. Okay, okay, okay. All right. So, I have to imagine that was not a high survival rate. And also, I can't believe that makes the procedures we do now where they, like, snip. We're not going to get into it. It's fine. But the procedures we do now, which are difficult for, for... humans to recover from seem so sophisticated (laughs) compared to that it's okay trace it's about to get more sophisticated don't worry this is medical science okay great got you fam orthopedist bernhard hein came along with his improvement on the device because this was working so well for bone and thus the osteotome was born the osteotome looked more like a kitchen knife And it used a hand crank to turn the serrated teeth around its long, oval form. Tracy, I have a picture for you. Okay. All right. And this is the original osteotome. And and was this used in, like, C-sections? Is that the idea? Like, why why do you need this? Okay. So, uh, symphysiotomy today is... Or, well, today-ish, is provided, <laughs> is provided under local anesthesia. And the cartilage of the symphysis pubis, there's a 1.5 to 3 centimeter long incision. Um, okay. And it's performed in a labor ward, and you're kind of going in da- that way. <laughs> you're, you're just you're using a hand a gesture that I just It's a down see. from the... the uh, pubis, like, front stomach side of you, down and in under local anesthesia. And so there's both an in and a from the top angle situation that the doctor is working gotcha. with. Gotcha. <sighs> okay. So um, this device, I would say, is vaguely 
looks to be, I don't have any size reference, but the the size and shape of it kind of reminds me of like a, a hunting knife or a Bowie knife. But just above the handle looks like some kind of crank that would pull this chain around. And that chain would then, it looks like a manual chainsaw. It is all wood and metal, and it looks extremely like something I want nowhere near my body. Yeah, the procedure carries the risk of urethral and bladder injuries, fistulas, infection pain, long-term walking difficulty. Ideally, it was performed when there was no other safe alternative. Right, right. (sighs) So here's a quote kind of describing the procedure. And this is from the journal, and it's talking about uh, some physiotomies in Ireland, which I'll get to in a second. But Mm -hmm. since you've asked, um, quote, the upper and anterior portions of the symphysis are severed together with the arcutate ligament leaving the last fibers to be gently torn by the slow abduction splaying of the legs. By further abduction of the legs, the separation of the pubic bones to the desired extent is brought about. And I guess, do you do this when you're having a difficult time having getting the child out? Yeah. If Basically, okay. if the pubic opening wasn't enough. Right. Here's um, a woman's description of the procedure. Again, this is from the journal, and this is specifically talking about some visiotomies in Ireland. Okay. Uh, this is from a woman named Cora. I was screaming, it's not working. The anesthetic. I said, I can feel everything. I saw him go and take out a proper hacksaw like a wood saw, a half circle with a straight blade and a handle. The blood shot up to the ceiling, up onto his glasses, all over the nurses. Then he goes to the table and gets something like a solder iron and puts it on me and stopped the bleeding. They told me to push her out. She must have been out before they burnt me. He put the two bones together. There was a burning pain, and I knew I was going to die. Oh, my God. That sounds that sounds like torture. I mean, that sounds like some, some of the most traumatic things I can think of. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Eventually... Uh, in 1905, a San Francisco logger submitted a patent for the endless chainsaw to be used on trees. Great. Great. That's fantastic for a tree. And I really want to emphasize this because I know that someone is sitting there like, ah, medical science has to start somewhere, blah, blah, blah. And so these this information that I'm getting, these quotes, they're, they're coming mm-hmm. from Irish women because – there is, there has been a lot of media about this in Ireland, and I'm very grateful for that. Uh, the Irish Council for Civil Liberties writes that symphysiotomy is, quote, carried out on pregnant women in many cases as an alternative to cesarean section and is alleged to have been carried out on up to 1,500 women and girls in Ireland between the 1920s and the 1980s. Oh, my God. God. Often without obtaining a woman's consent. The procedure involves severing one of the main pelvic joints and unhinging the pelvis to facilitate natural delivery. This procedure and the related procedure known as pubiotomy 
the severing of the pubic bone, is said by campaigners to have been routinely preferred by medical professionals in hospitals governed by a Catholic ethos, who were concerned with the limitations from repeated cesarean section on a woman's ability to bear children thought to accrue at the time. (sighs) End quote. I know that's a chunky quote, so I'm going to summarize it. In Ireland, up through the 1980s, women's pelvic bones were severed without their consent. And one of the main reasons that this was happening as late as it was, was that Catholic hospitals wanted to ensure that this woman, this person, was able to bear children again. And they believed at the time, despite scientific evidence, that the cesarean section was tantamount to contraception. I I mean, I don't have words. And and I know that you can only have a certain number of cesarean sections before you are advised to no longer be able to have children, even today. It it is exponentially more dangerous, the number of C-sections you have with each birth, which is why there's a big, huge growing practice for something called a VBAC, vaginal birth after C-section. And hospitals will have doulas and um, midwives and doctors and nurses there working with you during pregnancy all the way through delivery. My sister had a VBAC and my brother-in-law talked about watching trays of blood being carried out of the room and he honestly thought that my sister was going to die. And if the hospital wasn't so well trained in this type of procedure, there's a chance she could have because they kept a really close eye on how much blood she was losing and were then able to supplement that. But many hospitals don't keep that close an eye. And that's why you see a lot of deaths of of people during childbirth due to blood loss because it's not being tracked closely enough. So I want to read another quote for someone from someone who had a sphesiotomy. She said, quote, I was nervous over the years, always conscious of the need not to break that bone again. My sister said to take cod liver oil, so I took that until I got sick of it. And then I took evening primrose oil. I still take it. If I didn't take it, I'd know about it. It's small things like that that matter. I swore by baths and water. I'd hop into the shower. It gives you a bit of relief. I didn't realize it. The sophisiotomy would cause so much trouble and pain. Your own relationship with your husband was at risk, running to the toilet all the time. I was always determined never to let it take over my life. I wasn't going to let it destroy my life. Another quote. Yes, in the majority of cases, it did destroy their lives. I have every kind of an insole, reflexology, heel insoles, you name it, I have it. I had physio. My ankle was so bad, I thought maybe I'd get physio. It was so very sore. I would do anything to try to help myself. I try not to put on weight. I have a medical card, but I pay for the incontinence pads myself. Another quote. You don't take a block out from the bottom of the house because there's going to be cracking. The pelvis is the same. It's the foundation of the house. Mm-hmm. This, I don't think I can express how many quotes in this article of infinite scrolling are women talking about having this procedure without knowing it was even being done to them, being in labor in horrible situations, not being told about what was happening, 
not being told about it after the fact and then not understanding why they were having all of these health problems that continued for the rest of their lives. Right. Right. I mean, it is not a small thing to do to a person. So the publication Nursing Cleo wrote about this Irish saphesiotomy, let's call it an epidemic, (laughs) quote, Mm -hmm. here, a church-state coalition ensured that a Catholic ethos ruled the land by enshrining motherhood in the 1937 Irish Constitution, the state declared that women's primary and only duty was childbearing and motherhood. In the years and then decades after their saphesiotomies, Irish women endured chronic back pain, difficulty walking and lifting things, and incontinence. Astoundingly, and sometimes for decades, many women did not even know what had so disabled them. Doctors never told them that their pelvises were fractured during labor and birth. Okay, we cannot talk about this and point out the C-section as like this next step (laughs) without acknowledging the C-section's racist and medically unethical, to say the least, history. In the paper Black Maternal and Infant Health, Historical Legacies of Slavery, written by Deirdre Cooper Owens, Ph.D., and Sharla M. Fett, Ph.D., it can be found in the National Library of Medicine. Quote, A slaveholding surgeon, Francois-Marie Prevost, pioneered cesarean section surgeries on American enslaved women's bodies through repeated experimentation. James Marion Sims, another famed 19th century gynecologist, created the surgical technique that repaired obstetrical fistula by experimenting on a group of Alabama enslaved women, end quote. I I mean, I don't have anything to say other than People with uteruses have been mistreated throughout history, and the less white you are, the more mistreated you've been. There is a footnote on page 34 of Justice Samuel Alito's leaked draft opinion reversing Roe v. Wade that cites data from the CDC in 2002. That says, nearly one million women were seeking to adopt children, but, Alito writes, quote, Whereas the domestic supply of infants, relinquished at birth or within the first month of life and available to be adopted, has become virtually non-existent, end quote. Domestic supply of infants. If that makes you think of the supply chain during COVID, you would be one of many. This makes human babies sound like commodities. Well, yes, that alone is horrible. And then also to imply that (laughs) – to imply that it's become virtually non-existent. Okay, so we've solved for the foster care system. We have not. Oh, no. No, oh, no, no. Clearly we have. Justice Alito said that there's just not enough babies to be given to all the women who refuse to give birth to their own. (sighs) It's solved, Rowan. Congrats. We've solved it. There's no more need for us to take care of people – or young children, or teenagers, or babies who have needs of homes. They just, they don't need them anymore. Not even mentioning the fact that uh, forcing a woman to give birth for adoption, quote-unquote, is not uh, granting bodily autonomy either. Right, and I can't emphasize enough, for so many people, giving birth is a traumatic experience. Even in the best of circumstances, people have to go for for counseling because it was a really difficult experience. 
So then to force someone to give birth when they don't want to and endure that traumatic experience is genuine cruelty. So domestic supply of infants made me think of this sentence from that paper by Dr. Owens and Dr. Fett. Quote, Some transatlantic slave traders hired surgeons for the horrific middle passage in hopes of preserving their human cargo for maximum profit. In their writing, the doctors go on to add, quote, As far back as 1662, colonial Virginia legislators made black women's childbearing a centerpiece of the system of chattel slavery when they passed a law stating that the status of a child would follow that of his or her mother. This principle, known as partis sequitur ventrum, legalized chattel slavery as an inheritable status applied to Africans and their descendants. End quote. Uh, if it sounds like I'm quoting a lot this episode, by the way, it's because I am. People who are smarter than myself are doing the work to explain exactly absolutely. why the phrase of domestic supply of infants is absolutely inappropriate. Which we didn't even touch on the fact that, like, domestic supply of infants implies the only appropriate way to adopt is from within the country. It, it doesn't even acknowledge the fact that there are children all over the world who need loving homes. Hey, Trace, you want to talk about adoption from other parts of the world? In some ways, I so do. And in other ways, I think I'm already too, um, like, angry sweaty <laughs> to do it. <laughs> okay, so we know that... Overturning Roe v. Wade would affect people of color disproportionately, low-income people disproportionately, disabled people disproportionately. And we know that not just because we're doing research today, not just because we're people who understand nuance. No, we know this because we have historical evidence of this exact thing already having happened in Romania. So anyone who wants to imagine what America would look like without Roe v. Wade can just go back to 1966. The communist leader of Romania, Nicolae Ceausescu, issued Decree 770 to outlaw abortion for women under 40 who had less than four children. Ceausescu announced to the country, quote, The fetus is the property of the entire society. Anyone who avoids having children is a deserter who abandons the laws of national continuity. This was done in an effort to increase the country's population, which had fallen, and the birth rate significantly decreased after the 1950s, hitting its lowest point in 1966. Romania was, quote, industrialized late. Uh, this was after World War II, and women were a part of the workforce, and the standard of living was very low. These were all contributing factors, but the Communist Party believed that the birth rate was falling because at the time, Romania had the most liberal abortion policy in Europe. I'm, I'm too angry for words. So the idea is like, oh, we let people make choices and they made the wrong ones. So we're taking away your choice. In 1977, anyone without a child no matter their age or marital status, was charged an extra tax. As condoms and the pill came around in the 1980s, they were banned. I, I'm Romanian women <sighs> faced monthly gynecological exams at work and, if found to be pregnant, were monitored for the full term by Ceausescu's secret police, or secretaritat. Being pregnant 
but not giving birth was a crime. Women who broke the law could face two years in jail, and any doctor who performed an abortion could face a much longer sentence. Securitat agents kept tabs on doctors, and if a child was stillborn, they would examine it for signs that it may have been, quote, illegally aborted. Dr. Elena Borza, speaking to the Interpress Romanian news agency, said, quote, Out of desperation, women would resort to insane methods. They would use salt, detergent, or any other substance which they thought could help them get rid of the baby. Because of Decree 770, more than 10,000 died as a result of illegal terminations. Hundreds of thousands were left infertile due to desperate practices, and 100,000 children were put in orphanages. I've said it before, I will say it again. Removing access to abortions will not limit abortions. It will only limit safe abortions. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And because, because Alito chose to really go there with adoption... I I really want to dive into how dark these orphanages were in Romania at this time. They were awful places to live. Um, Vicinel Ballon, he's a psychology master's student and co-founder of the NGO Drawing Your Own Future, was put into a state infant center in 1987, and he was interviewed and describes it this way. Since the Second World War, there had been a system of state institutions for children. But after 1982, when Ceausescu redirected most of the budget to paying off the national debt, the economy tanked and conditions in the orphanages suffered. Electricity and heat were intermittent. There were not enough staff. There was not enough food. Physical needs were assessed. Emotional needs were ignored. Doctors and professionals were denied access to foreign periodicals and research. Nurses were woefully undertrained. Many orphans contracted HIV because hypodermic needles were seldom sterilized, and developmental delays were routinely diagnosed as mental disability. Institutional abuse flourished unchecked. While some caretakers did their best, others stole food from the orphanage kitchens and drugged their charges into docility. End quote. When Romanians overthrew Ceausescu in December 1989, the new government got rid of Decree 770 and legalized abortion. Ironically, by the way, the former ruler's trial took place in an abandoned schoolhouse where he faced judgment and was shot the same day, Christmas Day. Merry Christmas, Ceausescu. Yep. In that article where Visnel Ballon was interviewed, Ceausescu's children, reporter Wendell Stevenson writes, quote, In the early 1990s, Western charities and NGOs rushed into Romania with supplies of blankets, powdered milk, and toys. Many children were scooped up by Western parents in a rescue-adoption frenzy. Orphanages got basic necessities, but the culture remained unchanged. The importance of play and interaction and communication of care was not yet understood. Along with Western money came psychologists and behavioral scientists. Romania's neglected children represented a tragic experiment in what happens to institutionalized children denied the stimulation of normal human relationships. There was a big push in the 90s for Americans to adopt Romanian children. And it was easier to make a big push because they were all white children. Yes. Uh, which is not to be ignored. No. They were European children, which is not to be ignored. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, but, you know, a foreign supply of infants coming from a lack of abortion rights and contraception is not different in this scenario than a domestic supply. I'm also still not over the horror of monthly gynecological exams. Some articles that I read, most of them said monthly, some said every three months, but the deal was that these women had gynecological exams, and if they were found to be pregnant, it was very risky for the pregnancy to then be lost, even if you were not trying to. These women Mm -hmm. lived in incredible poverty. These people were struggling to provide for themselves and their children. And for a person to then have a miscarriage, it was incredibly mm-hmm. dangerous. It's it's a horror. And I didn't even know. I didn't know about this. And it's just absolute horror. And what really sticks to me is that it's not something that I – I hate that I can't imagine this as a future in America. I am watching in real time my own rights being taken away. And this feels so unimaginable to live, and yet things that I thought were unimaginable have happened and are continuing to happen. I think it would be really easy to hear that man's description of his time growing up in an orphanage in Romania uh, during Ceausescu's rule and say, oh, no, orphanages in the United States wouldn't look like that. But look at the foster system right now. Look at hospitals in certain parts of our country. Mm -hmm. There are people who struggle to have access to the resources they need. Having more children that are not born into families that can or will take care of them is not going to help. It is going to make it worse. And it is a problem that becomes generational even after it gets fixed. So... After Ceausescu is overthrown and Decree 770 is abolished, the United Nations Development Program and the Soros Foundation did studies on the results of Decree 770. They revealed that more than half of Romanian women had had at least one abortion, 32% had had two, 26% had had three to five, And anywhere from 12 to 15% of women had more than five abortions. Of course, the ban affected low-income and disadvantaged groups most of all. Ovidiu Voicu, a sociologist who was project manager for the Soros Foundation study, said, quote, In general, though, the communist countries were opposed to abortion and contraception because they wanted a high birth rate to boost economic production. Even among communist leaders, however, Ceausescu was the most radical. God, that sentence could have been a follow-up to domestic supply of infants. (laughs) Disgusting. Disgusting. Yes, it could have. So because women aged 25 to 34, remember the cutoff was 40, Mm -hmm. averaged at least one abortion. They also added in this study, quote, it is clear that especially in high school, education for sexual life is missing or incomplete, offering only anatomical information and nothing about behavior. This is what happens when you take away sexual education. Accurate, useful sexual education. 
Mm-hmm. So even when allowed access to contraception after Decree 770 was repealed, Romanian women were less likely than other European women to trust birth control and viewed abortion as the only reliable method. That was because the propaganda during Ceausescu's regime worked to convince the population that contraceptives were unreliable, unhygienic, and were only used by dirty women of poor character. And as of 2007, Romania still had the highest infant mortality rate in the EU. It's incredible the lasting impact that one man's decision had. That was one of the reasons why I wanted to write about mothers in my story this week, because mothers are Mm -hmm. so responsible for educating uh, children, and it carries on, and Mm -hmm. teachers too, of course. Right. But that is how these issues become generational. That is how people who are brought up in evangelical societies where people are demonized for any of a number of characteristics – ingrain that into their own personality because they're taught as children. Right. So Lima Bowie, who famously organized that sex strike in Liberia, said, Sex strike is the headline that sells. So when reporters interview me, they tend to ask about the sex strike first. Did the women of Liberia really bring an end to the heinous civil war by withholding sex? Well... It certainly gave the men a fresh motive to press for peace. But the truth is that the greatest weapons of the Liberian women's movement were moral clarity, persistence, and patience. Nothing happened overnight. In fact, it took three years of community awareness, sit-ins, and nonviolent demonstrations staged by ordinary, quote, market women, years of gathering in the roads in eye-catching white t-shirts, demanding the attention of convoys of officials and media folks who would glimpse the signs and the dancing, would hear the chanting and the singing. Then we launched the sex strike. In 2002, Liberia's Christian and Muslim women banded together to refuse sex with their husbands until the violence and the civil strife ended. End quote. This has been a... uh, arguably the one of the darkest episodes we've ever done but yeah also one of the most motivating um it's so important for everyone listening and and thank you for sticking through and listening to all of this and and coming on this journey with us because it's people like us and people like you that can be the reason we make change it's just like rowan just said it's about patience and it's about persistence so keep pushing through it doesn't have to be a major thing you do. It can be little things every single day, little ways that you make change, little ways that you push for change. If everyone pushes a little bit, we can really move the dial. I think in writing this episode, it both felt a little more disjointed and more cohesive than some episodes I've written. Like all of these pieces from history feel like examples that are far flung. And yet, as a woman living in the U.S., hearing about Roe being overturned and knowing that the bodily autonomy of so many people with uteruses is at stake. Mm -hmm. Reading this history feels like continuity to me. And it's very, it was very important to me in the writing of this episode that I included that portion of history in Romania because 
so often white women vote in their own disinterest. And right. there is this othering and there is a lack of visceral understanding of how class and race can protect you. And to see this happen in a European country where people just put it on this pedestal of, like, society and education. There's this European grandness and not the least reason mm -hmm. being that many European countries are doing things like providing paid leave to parents and childcare. But right. to see that history happen to people who look like you helps. And I would like to see in this next election white women who are the demographic that really messed it up for us the last couple times right. stepping up to the plate. <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. I completely agree. It's important to just try to have these conversations with people in your life who may not see it this way. And, and, and I, I have a feeling that everyone listening at this point in the podcast kind of agrees with us. Right, if you stuck around this long. Honestly, though, I hope someone stuck around just to be mad at us. I hope someone did. I hope they started sticking around to be mad at us and came out this end of it, seeing it from our perspective. Listen, if the chainsaw didn't do it, I don't know what will. Good. I mean, good job, Rowan. This was this was a tough one, but I'm I'm so grateful that you took the time to have this conversation and, and put all the research together Thanks. for it. Thanks for letting me be a little unhinged. I think <laughs> <laughs> always. Uh, Unhinged. Yes, that that is the energy moving forward. Mm -hmm. Hey, Tracy, mm -hmm. do you want to tell me something good? I would love to. So my something good this week kind of ties into the topic. Um, it's something Ron and I have chatted about. And we mentioned it at the top of the episode, but um, I I love a good comfy shirt and a comfy sweatshirt. <laughs> and what I love even more than that is one that says a message I can really get behind and. Also, the proceeds go to organizations and charities that I really support. So my something good is The Outrage, which is a website you can get tons and tons and tons of clothing from. I actually have, honestly, at this point, I think like five or six shirts and sweatshirts, a few pins and some socks from them. From over the years, I've just collected a lot of stuff. One of my favorites is um, I have a sweatshirt that says, thank you, Stacey Abrams, and the proceeds went to her campaign. I like that. I love that one. My sister just bought one that says, everyone you love knows someone who's had an abortion. And it's this beautiful floral print. So it, it at first just looks like a really pretty floral print shirt with that kind of white letters cut out of it. Um, and then I got another one that says, get in good trouble. <laughs> I like that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they have bands off our bodies. Um, I have sweatpants that say resistance. I mean, the, the, the prices for these things aren't the cheapest. But the quality is consistently incredible. And you can look at each item and see where the proceeds go to and see what you want to support. So I highly recommend the outrage um, if you're looking for clothing and looking for clothing that can also you could feel good about. We will put the link in both our show notes and on the recommendations page for you so that it's easy shopping. All right, Rowan, it's your turn. Tell me something good. My something good is anticipation for the future because i did a lot of research this week that made the future feel very bleak mm -hmm. uh, and so i 
coming up, I'm going to uh, my uncle's cabin in the woods with my family in Vermont. And one of my favorite things is that cell phone reception is a little spotty there. Uh, and mm-hmm. by a little, I mean pretty pretty non-existent so uh-huh. i it just gets to be us and the lake and books and good company that's lovely yeah i forget to disconnect from things so it's important <laughs> and it you know it's all the good things all nature good humans and having that on my future is really exciting i don't usually do like a future good thing but the excitement alone it is really getting me through. Like Christmas, when Christmas is coming, you're like... Right, right. When you just get to be excited about it. Absolutely. Yeah. So there we are. That's that. Well, if this was your first Willing and Fable episode... Oof. <laughs> we hope you stick around. But <laughs> thank you for listening this far into the episode. And thank you for joining us. And remember that stories grow with the telling. So if you like what we do, tell a friend. Or tell a foe. And we'll see you soon, okay? Thank you so much for joining us for the Willing and Fable podcast. This episode was written and produced by Tracy Harrison and Rowan Hall. That's me. Our music was written and performed by Taylor Ash, and our logo is by Jamie Harrison. If you ever want to watch or read what we're reading, head over to willingandfable.com for our show notes, or find us at Willing and Fable on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook to join the discussion. We hope you'll rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast using your favorite listening source. And check out Willing and Fable on Patreon, where we have more than a few surprises for you, including custom artwork, stories, and access to our secret Discord channel. And of course, join us next time for another round of ancient myths, local legends, and stories with staying power. Yeah, no, I was actually telling my therapist that the uh, text you sent me is the kind of best friend spite that I really needed, like the spite you cannot have on your own behalf Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. is the spite that you need your best friends to text you in the middle of the night, honestly. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) absolutely.